Pray, dear God, that um, through, the reading, through the reading of uh, his word that we may be open to his message. Okay, the law and the promise, Galatians 3, verse 15. Brothers, let me take an example from, from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, to whom the promise referred, had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Chris. It's one of those Bible readings that I thought, now this is going to be a challenge. Um, you've done very well, thank you. Let me add my prayers to Chris's. Lord, as we open your word, um, be the one who speaks. May your spirit be with us and reveal to us the nature of our own hearts. Um, expose to our minds the truth of your word. And Lord, may we, um, by your word, not be those who uh, are attentive only to the listening of your word. But Lord, may we be those uh, who go out and do it. And so give us, Lord practical understanding of this, uh, that it might change not only our lives, but the lives of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Dangerous Minds with Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, but it describes, well, it, it depicts a, a high school classroom full of uh, students that have pretty much given up on their education. 
largely because I think every teacher that's been teaching them has largely given up on them. And so Michelle Pfeiffer goes in and she says something revolutionary to this class. She says, you don't have to earn an A in my class. I'm going to give you one. All you have to do is keep it. And for those kids, it changed their view of education because they always thought that their education was something that they would, that they're meant to achieve and attain, but they never could. And now here comes a teacher who, rather than saying you have to work to get your grade, promises them that at the end of the term they will get an A. So rather than it being based on their works, it's going to be based on the promise of their teacher. And that's what Paul is seeking to do for his readers this morning. Get them out of a thinking that says you're going to, you have to try and earn it and it's going to be impossible for you to do it. And into a thinking that says, actually your righteousness is based on a promise. And when you understand that, it's going to change the way, not just that you think about education or that you think about God, it's going to change the way that you think about yourself. So the first point he makes is that the promise does not rely upon the law. Now, in the context of Galatians, as we've uh, come to understand already, is that uh, these believers are Gentile believers. They've come to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. And now there are people coming and saying, that's wonderful that you want to become God's people. Now, if you get circumcised, you'll be well on your way uh, to acceptance and all the rest. And Paul's saying, well, actually, what you'll be well on your way towards doing is putting yourself under the curse of the law again. And I don't want that for you. I want you to live in the freedom that you have come to know. So two words, promise and law. To give a human example, he says, even, man-made, uh, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. He's speaking about the promise of God and says, now you wouldn't like it if you came into a contract with someone and you both agreed on the terms of that contract and you signed off on it and then later on you found that actually you, the expectations being placed upon you are different to what has already been signed off on. Um, the bankers said, no, you, you, you have to pay for this house twice, not just once. You'd go, no, that, that's, that's not what I signed when I signed the mortgage. Now, if in human agreements... We expect that a promise is fair, that the contract holds once it's been signed. When we come to look at a promise given by God, can't we expect the same thing? God is not likely to go back on his word and change a promise that he's made. So let's not think that he's going to do that. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, he says. And it does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is in who is Christ. Um, now, Paul, in this passage, I think, makes some statements that are kind of difficult to understand. Because I read God's promise to Abraham and thinks and think now that is God's promise to him and his descendants and their descendants and their descendants. And that is true. And Paul understands that to be true because in Romans 4, 18, he says, Against all hope, Abraham uh, in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Paul understands that when God promises to Abraham and his offspring or to his seed, uh, as you read in the NIV or the King James Version, uh, it often means to all the people. 
that come after Abraham. His offspring are blessed. His seed is blessed. But Paul is using a particular argument here to point to the fact that of all of Abraham's offspring, there is one person that this promise is really being made to. God is making this promise to himself. I'm going to take you at your obedience, at, at, at you believing in my promise. And I'm going to take that faith and count it to you as righteousness. Not because I can do that in, in fairness to you, but, but I can do that in fairness to Christ who is to come. Because we know that before the creation of the world, God had in his mind that he would set apart Christ as his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. So the promise given to Abraham is a promise that God knew when Adam and Eve sinned that he would bring about. It's a promise that he knew when he saved Noah and his family from the flood that it was a promise he was going to bring about. It was a promise that he knew when he made the promise to Abraham that he was going to bring about because it's a promise he made to Jesus. You are going to be the offspring that brings the blessings that I speak to Abraham to all the nations of the earth. He wants his readers to know that the main reason why God made any promise to Abraham was that he was making a promise to Jesus. He was the principle of the blessing. He was the one whose name was really written into this contract. It's why God made the promise to Abraham. It's why Abraham's offspring can hold any truth to that promise. And it's why we can look at this and see that this is a promise also to us. You know, as a church, we've committed a number of times to taking teams to Thailand. And I know each time we do that, there's kind of a promise made to each person who goes that, you know, we're going to go to this place and we're going to experience these things. And this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and it can change your life. Now, I know that that promise is true for each person that goes. But in my heart of hearts, I'm thinking, I want us to become a church not just that supports missions, but a church that sends in mission. And somewhere along the line, we're going to see this promise fulfilled. It might be through one person in our church. It might be in a blessing that is... Uh, that overflows in, in the people that we go to see. Now, if that was the case, if one person out of all the people that go on local mission or international mission becomes an international missionary, uh, that, that doesn't discount that for every other person that has gone, that this is a life-changing opportunity that opens our eyes to the needs of the world and the, the possibilities of, of mission and, and meeting those needs. Same too with this. It's a promise spoken to one person, but because it is spoken to one person, the blessing is able to extend to all others who are a part of it. Paul continues, This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. He's saying, Now because there's a promise and then there was the giving of the law, does the promise change? Well, no. 
God's not about to change his law. Um, but does it make it void? Do, do we go from a promise to now a, a keeping of the law? Uh, Paul's comparing for his readers the difference between what's been done for Abraham and what's been done for Moses. Because as we know, they're kind of being told now Moses is our hero. He's the one who received the law. If anyone is going to become a uh, a person of Israel, they need to abide by the covenant given to Moses. And Paul's actually saying, actually, those two covenants are together. He says there's 430 years between them. Uh, that's not from the very moment that Abraham was re- received the, the promise to become the father of nations. It's probably more at the time of uh, Israel going down to Egypt, because Paul would be referring to that 430. 400 years between uh, going to Egypt and coming out through the Exodus. But the former time kind of reflects that, that uh, promise to the family. And then as the family grows into a nation in Egypt and comes out and receives the law on Sinai, uh, there's 430 years. So he's saying, over those 430 years, has, has anything changed? Does the promise become void the moment that the law is, is given? No. For the inheritance comes by the law. It no longer, sorry, if the inheritance comes by the law, my mistake, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So he says the law helps the promise, but it doesn't change it and it doesn't cancel it out. It has a function. Uh, And we'll see what that is. Uh, I see that it's a little bit similar to me saying, to my son, you pick which one. <laughs> I'm going to take you bowling this Saturday and I want you to keep your room tidy until then. Now, is that a conditional promise? No. It's a conditional promise if I say, if you keep your room tidy until Saturday, I'll take you bowling. But if I say, I'm going to take you bowling on Saturday and I would like to keep your room tidy, it's up to me whether I take him bowling. On the Saturday, if I want to hold to my promise, I will. If he, if I go in on Thursday and his room's untidy, I'll say, you know, I'm taking your bowling on Saturday, and I would really like for your room to be tidy. He hears the promise and goes, my father is faithful to his word, and I want to respond to my father in obedience. That's kind of the relationship between the law and the promise. God has said, I'm going to bless the nations of the earth. And I want you to to be a part of that. Let me give you a law. Let me show you what my expectations are for you and and the way that you can be a covenant blessing to the peoples, the nations of the earth. But when Israel turns and, and acts in rebellion against God, does that destroy the promise of God? No, the promise of God is his to keep. The expectations upon Israel is that they will walk in obedience and some do and some don't and some who want to do you know, a, a reasonable job of that but, but none of them keep to it entirely but that doesn't affect the promise because the promise is dependent upon God. And so what is the purpose of the law then? Paul says that the law reveals sin but it doesn't provide the solution to it. Uh, A little bit like Michelle Pfeiffer walking into the classroom and saying, I'm your teacher, but I'm not like your old teachers. And if Michelle Pfeiffer walked into any classroom, I think people would go, oh, you're not like my old teacher. (laughs) Um, So there's two questions that he he raises. 
Why then the law? And does the law spoil the promise? Uh, so Paul, I mean, whenever you read a, a letter like this, you're only hearing one side of the conversation, aren't you? And so Paul sometimes poses questions uh, and then answers them so that we kind of get both sides of his thinking. Why then the law? He says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Paul asks his own question and answers it. Why then the law? Well, it has a purpose and a time frame. Its purpose is to reveal sin. How are we to know the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, if we don't understand how we have been created as people. What is good and bad? What is holiness? What is, uh, what is righteousness? What is sinfulness? The law helps us to understand what sin is. Its purpose is to reveal that to us. And he says uh, that it had a time frame. It was from the time it was given till the one arrived to whom the promise was made. And so the law had a specific time frame uh, in which it was to do its job as well. And we'll see why that time frame is significant. Verse 20. Uh, now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I struggle with this verse a little bit. Um, this is why Paul's saying it. Uh, he's not saying that the law didn't come from God. Um, but he's explaining, uh, as we hear in Deuteronomy 32, that when God, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us, he shone forth from Mount Paran, he came with ten thousands of his holy ones, the flaming fire at his right hand. It's saying when God gave the law, he gave it through the angels to Moses. We can also read of that in Acts uh, chapter 7. In verse 38 it says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. And later in uh, 753, you received the law as delivered by angels, but you did not keep it. And Hebrews 2, 2 and 3, uh, since this message declared by angels has been proven reliable, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, none of those verses are diminishing the law at all. Uh, but all of them are sort of speaking of how it was given through the angels by God uh, to Moses. Now, again, Paul's not discounting the law in any part. But he is trying to create an argument for his readers that says, as good as the law is, Though it has been given by God and it had a good purpose and, and a right purpose, it's not as good as what God has begun to do that he'd promised to do. There's a greater promise than that promise. Simply speaking, uh, the greater has come. Like he said, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 8.6, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old one, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So for his readers who are struggling between this faith that we've received through grace and that we've believed in, and this law code that now we're being asked to, to add to our faith, to add, you know, to, to enrich it, Paul's saying actually that mode of faith, that 
act of obedience, it's actually less than the promises that God has given. That was enacted through angels. This one has come through God's very own son. They're both given by God, but you can see even in the way that God has delivered them to you, one is more important than the other. One is better than the other. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. You know, some of these things, it's important to state what's true and then to clarify what is true. Uh, Elsewhere where Paul talks about grace, and we'll probably have to address this through Galatians as well, uh, he understands that his readers are, are picking up the word grace and saying, ah, so you say that, that God is glorified because he's forgiven the wrong things we've done. Therefore, the more wrong things we do, the more he can forgive us and the better the grace is that, that he reveals. Um, sometimes people will take a truth and take it to its nth degree and end up twisting it uh, in their interpretation of it. So Paul's trying to make certain that the points that he's making don't get twisted in the wrong way. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? No. Uh, He makes clear that the purpose of the law was different to the purpose of the promise. The promise is pointing to the blessing of life through righteousness. Uh, The law had no power, though, to give that life. It's revealing what is righteousness, what does the righteousness of God uh, look like, But in the end, it wasn't trying to to get us to to be in that righteous place. It, It was never going to make us right before God. Our acceptance by God was not going to be based on the law. It was just to reveal to us the need to be accepted by God and the struggle that we face in that acceptance. Verse 22, Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We kind of realized that that we were under this curse of sin, but that there was a promise yet to come that would be given by Jesus to all those who believe. Scripture, I think, as he says it here, is speaking about all of the law and the prophets. Everything that you've read up to this point is pointing to these principles. And he just makes them clear in one verse. Sin, promise, faith in Jesus, and belief. We're under sin, but God has promised to make a way. It's come through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Simple. We've received the A. It's been promised to us. The one who has promised it is Christ himself. And he will deliver it for all who go from thinking, I'm a D student, I'll never make it, to an A student, I've been given it. Now he talks about what that identity looks like. Now that you've gone from being those students in the classroom who feel like there's no hope for me, I'll never make it, to those students who think, if you're going to give it to me, 
that changes who I am. He writes, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, faith here, he's, um, I noticed in the NIV it says, uh, now before this faith came. Because he's not saying before the faith of Abraham came or before the faith of the people in the Old Testament. They had faith. But he's saying, now this faith in Jesus, before faith in Christ came, we were held captive under the law, like prisoners. Paul's reaffirming to, uh, reaffirming to his audience that what we had is not what you want. Uh, before Christ came, we were prisoners under the law. Now that Christ has come, don't want, don't want to be prisoners. Don't want to get put under that again. The promise frees us from that. Look forward to that promise or accept that promise as we have looked forward to it. The law was simply our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. I want to speak to you of, um, about a way that you can speak to people about your faith. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the way of the master. Um, Ray Comfort and, and Kirk Cameron have put together a, a lengthy uh, series that you can go looking for on YouTube or, or wherever if you want to get right into it. But essentially it's this. It takes this verse that says uh, that the law was our guardian until Christ came and says that actually we can use the law still in our evangelism. If you were to say to someone, would you consider themselves a good person? They would probably say, well, yes, I'm a pretty good person. If you were to ask them, have they ever broken any of the Ten Commandments? They might say, oh, I'm pretty good at keeping them. Actually, I mean, if you tell me what they are, like, you know, do not murder, do not steal, um, you know, do not commit adultery. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at keeping those. And then just probe that a little bit further and ask the question, well, if I was to lie to you, what would you call me? You'd call me a liar, wouldn't you? If I was to steal something from you, even something small, what would you call me? A thief. If I was to commit adultery, even, even through my eyes looking upon a woman with lust, you would call me a, an adulterer. Now as a lying, thieving adulterer, if God was to judge me based on the Ten Commandments, would he find me innocent or guilty? If I've broken the law, I'm guilty under the law, aren't I? So if God judges me guilty, would I go to heaven or hell? And is that a question that concerns you? And then they go from there to speak of what can we do then if we know our guilt and know we're under judgment and know that our destiny is punishment in hell. Well, we go from thinking about our own goodness to realising why we call Jesus and the gospel 
the good news. Because Jesus walks into the courtroom and says, I'll pay that man's fine. Whatever she's done, I will stand in her punishment for her. Take whatever the judgment is upon him or her and place it onto me. For that is what God did as he put Christ on the cross. Jesus took death for you in order that God may give you life. Now there's a few things about that um, witnessing technique that I would uh, caution. Uh, It doesn't necessarily say why the law was given uh, or that the Ten Command- that the, the law that Paul is speaking of here is more than just the Ten Commandments and a few things like that. But the point is true, that the purpose of the law was to place us under sin, that to, to help us recognise that if ever we were to, to try and, and reach salvation by our own righteousness, we're doomed to failure. For we have each broken the law. We are all lawbreakers. We are each guilty. And the only hope of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What we were looking forward to has come. That answer to that dilemma of if I, would I be judged innocent or guilty by God and, and guilt, the guilty verdict hangs over my head. I, I know before the, the law was given there was a promise that God was going to bless the nations of the earth and, and that promise is fulfilled in Jesus. The gift that has been given has also been given to the Gentiles. I don't need to be Jewish To receive this gift. Now that faith has come, I am the Son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, son here is gender inclusive. The reason why many translations preserve just son here, even though it's speaking to both men and women, is because in, in Paul's day, it was only the sons who would receive the inheritance. The daughters wouldn't get anything. They would get it through their their husband's family and those sorts of things. And so him saying we are all sons is him saying we all receive the inheritance. There is no one who misses out. That's why he goes on to say, For as many of you who was baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What is the sign of belonging? Baptism. I think it's something that we've kind of lost a bit of sight of and we kind of think, well, it's just one of those practices that some people do and it works for them and other people don't. But just as circumcision was that mark that they were under the the covenant of the law, baptism is the sign that we have received grace, that I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. There is neither then Jew nor Greek, Slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's this verse saying? It's saying it's available to everyone. There is no one who misses out. It's the same salvation, whether you were a Jew or whether you were a Gentile. Because it now comes through the promise, faith in Jesus Christ. 
It doesn't matter if you are a master, upstanding in your community, or poor and a slave. You receive the same salvation. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, sitting on the left-hand side of the church or the right-hand side of the church. It's the same salvation for all who believe. Why I make that clear is some people will look at this verse and say, now all distinctions are thrown out. God doesn't mind if I'm man or a woman. And I think we'd find in many of these things, Paul elsewhere, by the word of God, will say that distinctions are still important. God has a role for men and it's an important role. He has a role for women and it's an important role. Don't think that it means that I can be whoever I like to be. But it does mean whoever you are, you don't miss out on this gift. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. And how great are the promises of God. I was having a chat with Beth on our way up to the, um, the concert during the week. And she was telling me that one of her friends has called Christians the hippie religion. Not because it's you know a religion for hippies, but she loves the way that Christians are laid back in their faith. That they're not trying to get people to do this or get people to do that. But if it's it's well, I think in her words, uh, or putting into her, putting my words into hers, uh, we are a people of of grace, who recognise that any can come. Any can receive that this message that we preach is for all who want to come and, and leave behind the burden of sin, leave behind the expectations of, of keeping the law and all those sorts of things. You know, um, Gordon's been telling us about Nepal and, and, and some of the, the difficulties there for Christians. Um, one of the difficulties there I found as a Christian was when we went to some of the the most sacred sites of the Hindus in the world. I think it was the second most sacred site. All I could see through the arch was the back of a bull. Um, and a sign in front of the arch that said Hindus only. You kind of get to this level of, you know, pursuing the religion. And if I as a Western walked up to that gate, they would say, uh, 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 Hindus only. I could say, oh, I'm a practicing Hindu. No, no. You don't look right You're from the wrong culture, the wrong background, all of those things. There's expectations, there's, there's roadblocks, there's, well, really, it's, it's a path to not knowing God anyway. But we have a path that is open for everyone. It's not the wide path that so many are traveling. It's a narrow path that only few find. But, if, but it's a way of salvation that is open to everyone. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, men, women, rich and poor. Those who have grown up in the church, those who have, uh, are afraid walking into a church that it's going to fall down upon their heads. It's not a religion of law and works. It's a religion of promise. Now that should speak hope to any of us who have found, felt through our lives I'm not good enough and I'll never be good enough. 
It should give us something that we can hang on to that says, it's no longer up to me, it's only up to God. And he's already done it. The promises come through Jesus. And it comes to all who by faith believe. And so we can go out into the world and speak to people of, of their lives. We can use the law and, and say, look, if you want to live a good life and, and make that the journey to your salvation or your hope, let me tell you how futile it is for even those who received that law we're hoping for the promise that we've received. So don't trust in yourself. Trust in the giver of the promise. For he does not break his word. Let's thank him for it. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, because sometimes we don't know when it is that we need to, to hear that truth that only your word brings. Because we can be deceived, we can be confused. We can convince ourselves that it, it is by a good life, that it is by our own efforts, that it is by this doctrine or that teaching. But your word reveals to us the truth. And as we've already prayed, Lord, we ask that, that we would not just be hearers of this, but doers also. That we would not just be people who are called to salvation, but that we are called to go and preach the good news to the Gentiles, to the, to the workers, to the students, to the farmers, to our family. Lord, as you have done this good work in us, carry out your promise in us and through us as we walk in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.